Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Kelly Knox. Kelly is the Senior Director at Fred Finch Youth and Family Services, an organization based in Oakland, California. Well, welcome, Kelly. Welcome to Aging Out Institute's podcast series. I'm so glad you can make it and talk with us today about your organization. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Wonderful. Well, I want to hear all about Fred Finch. But first, let me ask you this question. How is it that you yourself got involved in the foster care system? Hmm. That's a long answer, probably. Um, I've been actually working in the field of providing mental health and social services to foster youth in different sort of settings for more than 30 years. So that started way back, first working with teen parents who were foster youth, teaching them life skills and employment skills, as well as domestic violence shelter, congregate care group homes other shelters, transitional housing for homeless youth, all sorts of different ways that I've been involved with youth in the foster care system. Currently, I work at Fred Finch Youth and Family Services, and I oversee four different programs, three of which provide housing, transitional housing or permanent housing for transition age youth. And one of them is called Rising Oaks. And that's the one that the eligibility to become part of and live at that transitional housing program is that you have to be currently in extended foster care or funded under AB 12 in the state of California or former foster youth. So that's how I do that currently. The agency serves about 250 to 300 foster youth, but in many, many, many different settings and sort of programs. So Rising Oaks serves 30 youth at a time. um, And and like I said, they're all foster youth. Okay, wow. So you yourself, do you oversee all four of the programs that you mentioned? Yes, I do. I, I mean, I don't do it alone. I, over, I, I oversee and support the managers that run those programs. I've been at Fred Finch for about 13 years. Mm-hmm. And during much of that time, I ran one of the programs and have done different things. Um, and of course, now I'm, I'm senior director. So one of the programs I oversee is a permanent supportive housing program that is focused on a transition age youth, 18 to 24 um, and they get priority when those units become available. Um, it is permanent supportive housing, so they do tend to age on while they stay, especially in the Bay Area where the cost of living is so high and rental opportunities are pretty limited um, unless you have uh, a lot of money to be able to afford them. That one's called Coolidge Court. And then I have a program in Berkeley, which is close to Oakland, called Turning Point. And that's a transitional housing for homeless youth funded through HUD. So those are also the transition age youth from 18 to 25. And that's transitional housing so they can stay up to up to two years there. And then Rising Oaks, which is based here on our Oakland campus, is, like I said, for the foster youth. So that's the one that the eligibility is really around foster youth. 
My fourth program it doesn't have to do with transition age youth and um, housing, but it does involve a lot of foster youth, which is that I oversee a program that works inside the schools in special day classes with youth who need to, who have trouble in their learning environment and need mental health support in the classroom. So uh, many of those are foster youth as well, but the different requirements to be involved with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does Fred Finch serve other youth besides those who have been in foster care? Yes, we serve families and youth in a lot of different programs. We have, I think, about 26 different distinct programs between our Northern California, Oakland headquarters, and we also have a very large grouping of staff in San Diego and Southern California. Probably the vast majority of what we do, we call community mental health, which some people, it's easier to think about it as like mobile mental health. So we go to the foster youth or we go to the families or we go to the youth that need mental health services. So we're meeting them in their homes. We're meeting them in school. We're placed in some schools. We have some residential facilities for youth that can't live at home and need really specialized uh, residential services. We have one program, which actually is one of the things that I wish we could do more of just for foster youth is our visiting therapist program. And they are able to provide mental health services to the families and the youth and travel with them as the youth who often get moved from home to home, county to county and location to location are actually able to follow them for some consistency and provide mental health care over years in many different locations. It's, I think, an important part so that you know, foster youth don't end up having these artificial breaks of attachment with people and starting the work all over again with people that already sort of mirrors what happens in their home life setting where they're moved from spot to spot or removed. So that continuity, I think, is really important. Fred Finch also does TBS or therapeutic behavior services where it goes into the home and works with the family to help keep the youth housed so they don't need to go to foster care or can stay in their parent placement. Yeah, I think that's all. But we do a lot of different things and we do definitely with our transition age youth try to have a continuum of care. So we have transitional housing We have permanent supportive housing. We have outpatient mental health for those youth who just need mental health in the community, not just, but not included with the housing component. We have other transition age youth programs that work with those that are really severely struggling with mental health issues and sort of in an effort to keep them out of the psychiatric hospital in a real wraparound mode. So we do a lot of different things, Mm -hmm. which I think has some challenges and also is kind of nice when a number of programs can really help foster youth and transition age youth have a some sort of continuity with one provider and potentially the same case manager or therapist. Right, right. So one of the things that I wanted to ask is what do you believe is the benefit or benefits of being a program within a larger organization like Fred Finch. Fred Finch does a lot. It's a very broad uh, mission. You help a lot of different people with a lot of different services. 
and you are a part of that. Whereas a lot of other organizations, say transitional housing, that's what they focus on. They have transitional housing and they support the young people in foster care as they move into adulthood. And that's what they focus on and that's all they do. So my question to you is being part of a larger organization like this, what's the biggest benefit or benefits from that? I think one of the big benefits is that if a foster youth who's in transitional housing needs some other services that our transitional housing program does not have, you know, as a primary service available, that within the agency we can try, of course, as long as eligibility and those other things are met, the other requirements, is that we can connect them. So within the agency can, like if someone needs psychiatric medication or wants to be evaluated psychiatrically, we can within our agency resource some of that and help the youth stay in their home or their transitional housing, wherever they're living, and access those other adjunct services to help facilitate their stability. I also think that we have access to a lot more referrals just collegially One of my programs is really focused on homeless youth. So often I will get emails from people saying, hey, I need to figure out the new homeless coordinated entry system so I can help them with that. And the same way as with other people, we have people that are trained in providing EMDR to youth. And what is EMDR for people who might not know? Eye movement desensitization retraining. We might have to say that one again because I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> um, but it's one of the evidence-based practices that can help with healing trauma. And so we have a lot more resource in that way. We also have a very large training institute, which provides trainings to the community as well as our almost 400 staff. And that's a huge resource for all of our employees, as well as I think finding the best and the brightest trainers to come teach us about, you know, what we need to know specifically about life in foster care, how to help people become resilient or tap into their natural resilience and self-sufficient and all those sorts of things. So I think that helps a lot. Yeah, I would I would imagine so. If you don't have a larger organization to leverage for those connections, then you have to build those partnerships in the community. Mm-hmm. And that takes time, of course, and effort. But it's I think it's a critical partnership to build regardless. Yes, I do too. And we do have a lot of partnerships with outside agencies because of just it's just necessary. Human beings are so amazingly complex and their needs and their, you know, sometimes people, they might need some services that isn't, aren't provided in like Rising Oaks and the Transitional Housing Program. And they'd rather get that service provided from someone else. Like they don't want us too close, you know, so to be able to have that flexibility to go in-house and outside of our agency um, makes the most sense. One of the other things that we have that I didn't uh, mention is that we have an on-site medical clinic that's focused on transition age youth. And we do it in partnership with the middle school that's next door to our Oakland campus. We have a, it's about a nine acre campus here that was originally donated when Fred Finch became into existence in 1891. Um, And so the property is right next door to a middle school. And so part of the development of Rising Oaks 
was also the development of this on-site health clinic and dental clinic so that our youth could go from their apartment and walk a couple, you know, a hundred yards or more to the health clinic and be seen for any concerns that they might have. So that's a, it's a nice thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is that Rising Oaks that's there on your campus? Yes. So Rising Oaks is on our campus that holds a couple of our different other residential and housing programs and also our main administrative offices. Rising Oaks was a program that was developed in conversations with our local county Department of Social Services. And the original plan was that they were the county wanted to open up Rising Oaks and provide these transitional housing for the youth in extended foster care and co-locate a number of programs, including their independent living skills program, a bunch of others, and the county itself, a satellite office, and this uh, medical clinic and dental clinic for the youth. As it all got hashed out, it didn't all turn out to be that that didn't happen exactly. But we do have Rising Oaks and we do have the medical and dental clinic. But I think, you know, the idea was trying to, which which what is Fred Finch is all about as well, is they're trying to meet people where they're at. It's a lot more convenient for a youth to get mental health and case management services where they live or where they go to school. And so being able to provide that opportunity and remove that potential hurdle or obstacle is really important. Absolutely. So you built the the housing for the young people on the campus yourself? Yes. We had had an area of our campus that had congregate care group homes that we had closed down because of sort of the trend in moving from congregate care to placing minors back into family settings. And so we tore three of those buildings down and then from the ground up built Rising Oaks, which is three apartment buildings. There are 30 individual studio units. The whole process really included a core group of young adults to kind of help us. In fact, in fact, the original name of Rising Oaks was Emancipation Village. Oh, which, yeah, which the youth did not like, um, and as well as other people. And so we actually used a focus group to help in the design process. So we brought youth in to meet with the architect. We also had them give us suggestions and vote on a name. I was very surprised that they came up with Rising Oaks, but um, <laughs> but they did, and it's stuck, and we've been open now for seven years, um, since 2013. Okay. And some of the other things that I think were really instrumental in the development was that they really had a hand in how the design of the units, like they're studio units, but they really wanted a half wall so that it sort of could separate the bed area. They also really wanted doors that open to the outside, not like you see in some apartment buildings where doors open to internal hallways. They also didn't want doors that open towards the street side, things like that. So I think that was also really important. And it also follows our philosophy of really trying to meet them 
and hear them and try to provide what we can. Because what did we know we were doing? You know how we were developing this. And we do that in the same way with some of the rules and some of the way that the program runs too, still trying to keep their voice front and center as much as possible. Well, I think you're segueing right into my next question, which was, what is the program? What does it look like when these young people are placed at Rising Oaks? Do they have somebody living on site there to help support them? Or do they have people who kind of check in on them periodically? Like how how independent are they? They're pretty independent. The youth might not say that, though. Um, (laughs) But we try to treat them as if they were tenants with their own apartment. They have their own keys to their own units. We don't enter their units unless there's an emergency or we've given, you know, notice for a pest inspection or something like that or a repair that needs to happen. Like a typical landlord agreement would have. Yep. Yeah. And so while in California, the youth in extended foster care aren't supposed to be on a lease, we do basically teach them by showing them what a lease would look like and showing all the things, having house rules and sort of upholding the rules that any sort of general reasonable landlord would have to help sort of inform them. So they they can have guests. There's no curfew. We do have a limit on guests of three because the units are pretty small. And of course, you know, we had a couple parties with, you know, 10 or more people in them. It's independent living, but people are there. So we have staff on site 24 hours a day. Most of that time, they're awake staff and they are clinical case managers doing case management, mental health, kind of whatever's needed. We have residential counselors who help sort of make sure things are safe later in the night and overnight. We also have a live-in person and she is our night coordinator. She sleeps on site and lives on site, but she's there available if there's any any emergency or anything. And, and the youth know that they can go and wake her up or call her if they need something. So that's a huge important part of what we have as well. Do they go through any kind of uh, life skills training? Are they expected to, like what's expected of them as part of this arrangement? We expect them to meet with staff (laughs) to sort of be able to assess like what is their needs. You know, when we have 30 youth, they all have a lot of different needs. Sometimes we have youth that are still finishing up high school. And then we have other youth that may be dropped out early. We have other youth that are in college. So I think meeting with them individually with their clinical case manager and finding out what their goals are and what their next plans are, are important. To qualify for AB12 and be in this extended care from 18 to 21, a youth is supposed to either be in school part-time or work part-time or be working on removing whatever obstacles they may have to doing that. We have one staff member, we call them a specialist counselor, and she works with them around finding jobs, getting into school, whatever it is that they need to be able to do that. And then we also have a peer mentor on site who has lived experience and really is integral in helping them learn how to do laundry learn how to clean, learn how to organize, learn how to grocery shop, you know, whatever it is that they need that gets identified. So those are all available. um, And those staff are all around checking in with youth. And then we also have a property manager, which I forgot to mention, who's really instrumental in sort of being that landlord person and really helping them learn how to be better tenants. So 
we may have something that happens late in the night and the next morning when the property manager comes in, she's going to address and talk about those things. So in that way, it's less independent living because we are watching and we are going to address things. It doesn't mean we're going to kick people out or even get in trouble. It just means, hi, we see you and <laughs> we're not sure. Or maybe you had an altercation with one of your guests last night or you came and asked one of the staff to help you ask a friend to leave because things were uncomfortable or, or however it is. So we have a lot of support for those that need help. You know, just setting limits. You know, you're 18, you get your own place and your friends want to come over and being able to manage that is a huge responsibility when you're not used to that, when you're still living in other environments where the rules are really clear. So we try to strike a balance between that, like here's the framework, here's what we need, and here's all your freedom to kind of make those choices and kind of see how it goes and what you need help with. Right. And do you help them find housing when they have to leave? I imagine when they turn 21, they have to transition out. Because we're a transitional housing program, the terms of that are that people can't stay longer than 24 months. That's being a little bit impacted by the COVID-19 situation right now, which we can talk about. So 24 months is usually when we stay. So yes, the case manager, peer mentor, specialist counselor, any of those people can help the youth figure out next steps. It might be another transitional housing program, especially if they came to live with us when they were 18 and their 24 months is up. They still have another year of being an extended foster care, being a non-minor dependent. So we can help facilitate them moving to another program that has sort of similar features. We're different than some of the other ones and most of the other ones in our county in that we offer mental health support. But there, there is another one that does that as well. Yeah. I did want to ask you about the mental health support. How important is ensuring that you have mental health care for young people aging out of foster care? I, I know that PTSD is common among foster youth, and I would imagine that would be part of potentially your answer. But I, I'm just wondering, because I don't think I've had this conversation yet, is the importance of having that mental health support. I think at staff who understand trauma-informed care, I've had that conversation. But specifically mental health care, what would you say about the criticality of that? I think it's very critical. I mean, we find it all the time that the referrals that we get through the county social workers, you know, they're looking for mental health or they're looking to be able to continue their mental health services that their youth are receiving. When youth come to Rising Oaks, they do tend to have a lot of uh, PTSD as well as other mental health things, many times undiagnosed through the process because the amount of grief and trauma and disruption of attachment can really look differently for foster youth. You know, there's there's always the part of the youth who they say, I've been to a therapist my whole life. I do not want to see a therapist. And I think that totally makes sense. Or even a case manager. Like I've had adults trying to be helpful in my life forever. And I'm done with you. <laughs> you know, I'm 18. And I'm so, you know, our staff actually in all of our programs really but especially our transition age youth programs, is that they have to really know how to build rapport. I mean, really know how. Because it's a developmentally appropriate stage to be like, I can do it by myself. I don't need anyone's help. Even when 
you still do need some help. Or you haven't told anybody about some stuff that's been going on, but you're starting to have dreams that are keeping you up, or you're feeling sad more days than any other days, and you don't want to do the same things that you want to do. We have a lot of domestic violence and interpersonal violence, I think, that the youth experience, and those all can really impact somebody's well-being and their mental health. You know, our model of having a clinical case manager who's good at case managing and, you know, helping get people connected to what they need to do, like real practical things, learning to get yourself to a doctor or figuring out kind of how the bus system works, whatever it is that they need. In addition to if someone's showing up and needing some help with feeling so anxious that they can't get to sleep at night or maybe substance use too, which is separate than mental health, but you know, it's all sort of part of this combination of overlapping issues. You know, somebody might be so anxious and so they're smoking marijuana um, every morning before they go to school, but then they can't focus in school. So how can we help them figure out more functional ways, if you will, I guess? I, you know, I mean, we d- definitely come from a harm reduction perspective as well, whereas we really want to meet people where they're at. Sometimes they want to make changes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they want mental health help. Sometimes they don't. But I think being able to make those attachments and those relationships with youth can help them. They may spend the first year with us really just only wanting to see their case manager because they need help with something very practical. And then after that year mark, they may sit with therapists, the clinicians sometimes will say, yeah. And then then they said, wow, I'm talking to you like you're my therapist. Maybe I should get a therapist. And the clinician says, well, actually, that's part of my job too. It's all part of it. So it's much more holistic as, as a therapy is not about just sitting in a chair for a 50 minute hour. It's about the interactions you have in the car on the way to a social service appointment or interactions you have at a barbecue that we host to build community or any number of other things that there's lots of opportunities to impact and help people. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think that's nice and Well, it's unique about Rising Oaks that I haven't talked about, which is that because we have the housing and we're the landlord, but we're also the service provider, it can be complicated, but it also has a lot of benefits. There's one example of a youth who, it was when we were first opening up, I went in and did a unit inspection on her unit and the the apartment was a disaster. It had never been a disaster. She has all, was always very meticulous. She had a child, very meticulous. And I went to the staff meeting later that day and I said, does anybody know what's going on? Because something's not right. So that's sort of the property management can inform the mental health component and services as well as the other way around. Then we can sort of help on multiple angles and also with multiple staffing because, you know, they have certain people that they like to get services from. So if we're all working on understanding how someone's showing up and what they need and where they might be having difficulties, we can better help get them what they need to succeed and move forward. Right. You know, speaking of that support in this current COVID-19 situation that we're in, how has that been impacting the foster youth that you serve? And how have you been helping them manage through this? 
Yes, it's definitely been difficult for them as well as for all of us. They're definitely not big fans of shelter in place. If you're mm-hmm. familiar, California is pretty early with shelter in place. And I think it's been really confusing for them. You know, they're not huge watchers of news. And I think the rules were changing so frequently that it was just a lot when they're trying to do their lives. They Also, a number of them lost their jobs. And they also had to transfer their in-person schooling to home. And so helping them figure out how to do online learning when they might not have the laptop or the resources needed was also really important. And we also stopped allowing guests. So on our whole campus, we said, okay, no guests for right now, except for essential, you know, case managers or or whoever. And that was very hard. I tend to not want to set up any sort of power struggles with youth. It's too easy to do that. And it's just not helpful. But, you know, given this situation, we needed to really help inform them about what was going on. So I think that was the hardest. Well, sure. Friends are so important at that age. Exactly. And then, you know, I think also for their mental health, the isolation that they can already feel. I mean, they love having their own units, but I do know that there are some people that having their own unit that they don't have to share with someone is kind of overwhelming and can feel lonely. So we have a community space on site that they can access and we have a TV and we have computers and staff offices and another kitchen and where they can come to groups and informal and and formal groups, et cetera. And we shut that down as well, just out of safety. And so there were lots of, you know, more limited, less options for them to, you know, have their friends. Those have been the hardest. The clinical case managers, all the staff really came together to try to help them understand that, you know, you needed to wear a mask when it got put in place that you couldn't go into any businesses or any stores without wearing a mask. And there were some rumors about police might be stopping people if they didn't have masks. You know, we said we need to get masks to these youth, whether they wear them or not is their personal decision, but they need to have them on them because I don't need any of our, you know, young men and women of color with primarily, um, is at Rising Oaks stopped because they don't have a mask. (laughs) So the clinical case managers, they've done a newsletter about like how to stay safe, how to deal with anxiety, how to identify, you know, any sort of depressive symptoms that might be going on, where to reach out to, how to get extra food, giving them incentives to meet. We gave them bags of masks and gloves with puzzles. And we've had a donor that's given us a lot of gift cards for the youth that lost their jobs. So we've been able to do that. And then seeing them either, mostly we do it telehealth, but I think the services are also provided distance with masks out in the open. Uh, Rising Oaks has this lovely courtyard that sort of unites all the three buildings that are sort of situated in a circle. And so the doing things out there on the picnic table and in our grassy areas are helpful to sort of some semblance of normalcy, but it's hard. And the youth that have children, so now they're stuck at home and they have a two-year-old or they have a baby. I think as much as everyone feels it, because they have a lot of other challenges, you know, they're not privileged in the world, they don't have a lot of money, they don't have cars or reliable cars, Um, they don't have a lot of extra supports, it just makes it hard. 
Right. Absolutely. Now, did California extend its extended foster care because of COVID? Yes, it had extended for those that turned 21 and would normally age out. They had originally extended it to the end of June 2020. And then just a couple days before that was set to expire, they've now extended it through next June of 2021. Wow. I know. (laughs) I was very surprised it was extended that far ahead. Yeah. So does that mean the young people who are, you know, approaching 21 right now can stay that much longer in your program? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm still working with some of our housing funders who originally helped us with the development money for developing the housing about whether they can stay past their 24 months and still be considered transitional housing. But I feel like we're making headway on it. Well, that has to be such a big relief. I can imagine how stressed the young people who were close to 21 must have been. First, you have one deadline, your birthday. Well, no, now we're extending it to June. And they're like nail biting, finding out what's going to happen. It had to have been tough. For sure. And, you know, maybe you had a job and you were getting prepared and you were ready to move into your own place and take it over. And then you lost your job because of the pandemic. So then here you are sort of scrambling again. So and most of those people, while they've gone back to work to some degree, you know, we're still pretty closed, especially up here in our county up in Alameda. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm really glad that your organization, not that it surprises me, though, that you've stepped up and you've made the adjustments that you needed to to support these young people. I've heard Every organization I've talked to, the people who represent those organizations, they said that they've, you know, they've had to pivot (laughs) to make sure that they can support their young people going through COVID-19 as we all are, and your staff as well, of course. Um, So, you know, I'm really glad to hear that, that you were able to do so and that you do have such a large support system there. That really has to have helped. Yes. Yes, I think so. That's fantastic. Well, we have a few minutes left. I just want to make sure that I I include the question, which I do ask so many of our interviewees. How do you think the foster care system can improve? Now, you're in California, so you'd be focused on California, but really anything about the system. I don't like to bash the system on this podcast, but really focus more on solutions. So from your perspective, what do you think is an opportunity or two that could be taken to improve the system? One thing that I didn't talk about, but that is also part of our philosophy is that youth really need one caring, reliable connection. Harvard Center for the Developing Child released a study that basically summed that up, the power of one caring adult. And while I think in the county that we're in up here in Alameda County, they have done a lot of work and improvement for facilitating the stability of placements, focusing on permanent connections for the youth so that they have some sort of safety net or some, you know, just sort of consistent supportive people advisors, if you will, that when they need advice or they need someone to talk to, that they that they have that. For me, it sort of boils down to very simple. The attachments and the disruptions in the life of foster youth can be so significant that figuring out some way to minimize those so that the The system is not trauma-inducing, taking them out of situations that are stressful, putting them into more stressful situations, moving them around. So how can we make those changes less prominent for them and in that way help their ability to increase their attachment to people, 
focus on their resiliency and the skills and the competencies that we know that youth need to to go. They don't they don't have safety nets, right? I mean, that's the part of the whole problem. And so how do we help them get as prepared or develop those safety nets that the majority of people have? You know, often people talk about independence. So we really think about it as like, how do we help them become self-sufficient or interdependent? Because it isn't really about being independent. It's about how do you figure out the supports that you have so that you have more legs on your table, if you will, so that, you know, the more legs you have on the table, if one falls off or breaks or something like that, the more stable you can be. Uh, and I'm not really sure how, you know, how the foster care system can do that. Um, I think definitely not having so many youth in congregate group homes where they don't have a consistent person, they have people coming in for shifts is probably helpful. And also, I think the mental health treatment component of it, um, having that available for them early when they're maybe not as I don't like to use the word symptomatic, but when a youth is, a foster youth is having behaviors that are not working for those around them, whether it's school or family, they get focused. But I think there's a lot that we miss early on if we're not really assessing for that and offering those supportive roles earlier on. So access to all those things. And I think like I talked about our visiting therapist program, often County to county, when someone moves, a foster youth moves from one county to another county, those services have to be ended and then started up again in the new county. And being able to not have that be the norm and be able to follow people around. I mean, they're burdens for providers because sometimes you could drive for a couple hours. But in the long run, it really supports a youth not to have to have these sort of artificial interruptions to their attachments and services they're getting. Well, I really think that with this COVID-19, as horrible as it's been, that it might be showing us that this technology, the online meeting platforms and such, really could have a place moving forward. And I could envision, what if every foster child was assigned a mental health worker, somebody who's trained in mental health support, not just a caseworker, right? The caseworker is important, but a mental health worker, therapist, who can check in regularly via an online platform. And no matter where that young person goes, hopefully not not a lot of different places, but let's just say worst case scenario, even if they're bounced around a lot, they could still have that same person regardless of where the location is. With this technology, county boundaries and other boundaries really don't seem as important as they used to. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree that the pandemic has provided a lot of opportunity. And we just agency-wide have seen those families and youth that were hard to engage before in person are really engaging, you know, in telehealth. And there's just some level of comfort. And, And we also see the opposite, too, that some people really want to be in person and that they can't sort of make that transition. Sometimes it's because there's no technology available. But I I do think that um, mental health and I just think any social services, like with this ability to, I even think child and family team meetings where you're bringing people in from a lot of different providers, you know, often some people will be able to show up, but some people won't. Now, if we could continue using the different platforms that bring people in online, I think 
we have a lot of opportunity that we could really capitalize on to really have a lot of different people at the table and 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 have a lot of more access to those things that are needed. Yep, absolutely. I, I really think it's an opportunity as well. I, I agree. Now, I wish we could talk more about this. I would love to brainstorm with you for a lot longer. I'd love to talk with you about all of your other programs because I think we really mostly focused on Rising Oaks. But unfortunately, we're out of time. So I think I'm going to ask you one final question, and that is if anybody would like to contact you or even donate to your organization to help you out, what's the best way for uh, people who are listening to get in touch with you? Well, they can always look on our website, which is fredfinch.org, and that will show everything and also has some contact numbers. I'm happy to have people email me. Um, It's my full name, Kelly Knox at fredfinch.org, and I'm happy to help. We have a lot of amazing things happening here and always welcome support in whatever way people are interested in, in doing that. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. I've really enjoyed learning about what you do there at Fred Finch, all of the um, opportunities. I'm going to get on the website myself and explore all of these programs that you have (laughs) that we did not have a chance to talk about. Thank you very much, Kelly. I really appreciate your time. And I do wish you the best uh, for the rest of your summer and for the rest of the year. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, for those who have listened to the end, thank you very much for doing so. We put out a podcast about every week or two, so keep checking on the website or on your usual podcast distributor for our latest and greatest podcasts. 